Um, this is our last sermon in this series. The series has been called um, The Perfect Story. The idea behind this series is um, people who are skeptics and just people who are lifelong Christians but have never really had their answers uh, questions addressed really have a lot of deep questions about the Bible. And, and so how can we talk about those in this setting in an honest way that is helpful? So we've addressed a different question every week. The question we're asking this week is, isn't the Bible too good to be true? Isn't the Bible too good to be true? Now, this is, it's not a question you're going to hear word for word, verbatim, like in a coffee house or something. People aren't going to be saying, hey, isn't the Bible too good to be true? That's not what they're going to say. But I'm suggesting that that question is sort of baked into our culture. It's out there. It's in the, the ethos of our culture because um, people are conditioned to categorize a story like the one the Bible tells in the same category as um, other kinds of mythologies or even other holy books that kind of um, do the same thing. A lot of promises that are ethereal, a lot of language you don't quite get, but it seems to promise high and deliver low. And so maybe we should lump the Bible in with that um, within that category instead of, you know, staking all of our hopes on it. Because we are a pretty jaded bunch. Because we have staked our hopes to things before that let us down. We have believed in stories before that seemed too good to be true, and they were, and we got our hearts broken. Or we believed in a person or people we thought seemed perfect, and they were not perfect by any means. And so we got our hearts broken. And every time that happens, we get a little more jaded. Some of y'all are too young to remember and to know just how highly esteemed Bill Cosby was in my generation. All right, so we loved this guy. Like he could do no wrong, we thought. All right, so when I was young, Bill Cosby was the creator and the star of the most popular TV show in history, right? He was the face of Jell-O. He was, he was a regular guest on Sesame Street, this guy. He toured the nation lecturing the African-American communities about family values. And, and he taught white kids like me about the realities of racism in America. Like, he taught some of us so many things. And we all loved him or liked him. We all learned from him. But as it turns out, the whole time he was doing those things, he was doing other things too. Like drugging women and assaulting them unaware. You know, like that, that was what he did on the side for years. Dozens, if not hundreds of women. I can't tell you how hearts broke in this culture when that happened, when those charges came to light. What? Bill Cosby? Heathcliff Huxtable? What? That can't be. But it was, and our hearts broke, and in the aftermath of that, everybody who believed in Bill Cosby was less likely to believe in anyone else ever. And that's the issue, right? So, and he's not the only one. Like, when I was young, when I was little, my grandma used to watch this preacher on TV, and um, <clears throat> she watched him every week, and she loved him so much. He was this polished um, charismatic, handsome, eloquent preacher, had a great family. He was humble, too. He always talked about how this beautiful family of his, they all lived together in a one-bedroom shanty in Louisiana. 
I happened to see that house, by the way, one time. It's not what he makes it out to be. If there's one bedroom in there, it's a large bedroom. <laughs> anyway, he used to preach these sermons, and my grandma would hear them early Sunday morning, and then she would go to her church and quote that preacher's sermons to her preacher after his sermon, which is the worst thing you can do to a preacher. Don't come in here quoting other preacher's sermons right after I'm done, all right? Unless it's bad. I'll listen if it's bad. All right, so, <laughs> so, but it was always good for her, right? Even though she was a widow on a fixed income, she used to write checks to this preacher every month. But as it turns out, this preacher wasn't who we thought he was. This preacher was spending grandma's money and probably a bunch of other grandma's money on at least one lady of the night doing unspeakable things outside of his marriage. Yikes, something broke in my grandma's heart when that happened. Now, full disclosure, incidentally, she fell head over heels for another TV preacher later in her life before she passed. She really developed an infatuation for another TV preacher who, who happens to preach not far from here in where the Rockets used to play. So anyway, <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying they're the same at all. I actually think they're not the same. Like, that's not the same category. It's not the point at all. Grandma used to watch his sermons with the volume down. Be like, Grandma, what's going on? She says, I don't need to hear it. I see the Lord in his smile. Wow, <laughs> Grandma. All right. Okay, that's creepy. Okay. So... <laughs> The point is this, she never wrote that preacher a single check. She learned her lesson. She wasn't going to fall for it again. I'll enjoy the sermons, the volume down, but you're not getting my money, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because something switches in our brains when our hearts are broken. When we believe in a story that seems too good to be true, and then we realize that it is. When we believe in a person who seems perfect, we realize they're not. Y'all, this is the story of many of our lives. Pete Rose was the hero of my childhood. I loved Pete Rose. How many of you had the yellow Livestrong things around your wrist 15 years ago? Of course, we loved Lance Armstrong. Tiger Woods was a phenom. He set the world on fire. He changed golf forever. But all three of these guys turned out to not be very good guys, at least in one season of their lives. And our hearts were broken. We were let down again. Is there anyone we can believe in? Any story we can believe? Like imagine, uh, think back when you were single. If you're, if you're married now or if you're single, like you know what it's like to see love stories play out in the press, in the media, on TV, in movies, and think, I want a love like that, right? Like I want one day I'll find my prince the way Diana found hers, and I'll be happy. They're going to last forever, we said back in the 90s, the 80s. That didn't work out, did it? It turns out he was not her Prince Charming at all. But we see these things in the news or the, the media, and we think, like, when I'm old, I want a man who looks at me like Bruce Jenner looks at his wife. That didn't work out at all, <laughs> at all. In no way did that work out. <laughs> but we thought they were such a perfect couple. They fought a little, bickered a little, but that was made up. It was great. It didn't work out at all. But we see love in the news. Oh, I want a passionate love that lasts like J-Lo and Puff Daddy. I want, 
I mean, I mean, J-Lo and who, Ben Affleck, that's what I want, is a love like that. Uh, I mean, J-Lo and Mark Anthony, that's, I want the, that love that lasts. Wait, uh, she's with, uh, who is A-Rod now? He, he's always been a man of his word. I'm sure that one's going to last. All right, so I want a love like that. <clears throat> and again and again, we're disappointed, heartbroken, let down. Anything that promises big is never going to deliver. And so I, I feel like we're so jaded. And that jaded um, sort of state carries over into our life with God, into how we look at the Bible. Even those of us who go to church, um, you know, we find it hard to really buy in sometimes. Like, do I want to invest all my heart in this book that says some crazy things I can't defend? Do I want to invest all my heart in this God whose existence I can't absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt? Or do I want to just go to church on Sunday and have my religious life over here and have my real life over here and feel good about myself? Many of us face these questions because we've been let down so many times. And we're afraid to believe because we think it's too good to be true. Today I want to ask you just to consider the possibility or consider the question, what if? <clears throat> what if there is one story that is, looks too good to be true but really is true? And what if there is one person who appears to be perfect and really is? Those are the core claims of Christianity that's the whole thing. That's why we gather on Sundays is these two claims that there is a person who is perfect and there is a story that is good that tells us about him. So what if that is true? And if you're a skeptic, I just ask that you suspend your doubts and disbeliefs for just a moment and let's talk this through. You've heard me say ad nauseum uh, throughout this series um, that the Bible is not one book, but it's 66 books. And you're probably tired of hearing me talk about this, um, but I promise there's a reason why I've said this 50 different times. 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years' time on three continents in three languages. Why does that matter? Listen, it bears repeating again and again because kids like me that grew up in church, especially in the South, especially in the Bible Belt where a lot of Christianity is assumed, we grew up hearing that the Bible is one book and it's clear, the story is clear and if you have faith, you can understand it and if you don't have faith, you're gonna struggle with it and then you struggle with it and you're like, I don't have faith, I guess I should go, you know? And, and, and you realize that as you grow up and you grow a mind of your own and you read the Bible for yourself, that the Bible isn't what you were told it was. It's not above reproach. It's not beyond suspicion. It's, it can't, you know, um, it can't live up to those expectations, right? But, but as, I, as I grew up and, and really came into my own, I learned to read the Bible with this in mind. That yes, the same Holy Spirit might have inspired all these 40 authors, but there's 40 different witnesses. Some of them point ahead to this key event. Some of them testify to it in real time. Some of them point back to it. But they're all contributing to the same story, all 40 of these witnesses. And I think this matters, especially in our time when um, people are so slow to believe one person's story or one person's account of things, all right? So 
I think this helps us get beyond some of the things, the doubts where we categorize the Bible as myth or even when we categorize it as on par with other holy books. Listen, I mean this with all due deference and all due respect to other holy books. You will hear the Bible lumped in with other holy books in um, college courses and online and things like that. It is totally not that. It is totally a different animal. Even if you don't believe it, you have to recognize that it is a different thing entirely. Let me just share a couple of examples, all right? Again, all due respect, all due deference. Um, the Bible is different than the Quran. And you'll hear those two talked about as though they're the same category. They are not the same category. The Bible, we've got this. With the Quran, we've got one author who had um, an experience in secret with an angel who dictated everything to him, told them what to say in a, their private conference, and then he left the angel's presence and delivered the final, you know, um, the final result, the revelation to the people, and said, do not question it, do not change it. To question or change it is a sin. This is the final revelation, the word of God. And by the way, I'm the most important prophet of God. And I'm more important than Jesus. I'm better than Jesus. That was the revelation, right? The only problem with that is, aside from there just being one author, is who this author was. We know his name was Muhammad, and, and we know some things about him historically. Like he was a proud slave owner his whole life. He never renounced that or questioned that practice at all. Again, 600 years after the last parts of the Bible were written. He was the husband of at least 11 wives. It could have been 13 wives. We're not sure if the last two were really wives or if they were slaves with Benny's. We don't know. We just know that he had 13 women total. <clears throat> One of his wives was six years old when he married her, but because he was an upstanding guy, he didn't consummate the marriage with Aisha until she was nine. <clears throat> and this kind of character question is important when we consider the word he delivered compared to the Bible. His was a secret revelation, right? So uh, I got to tell you, if someone of his character came back uh, from a secret meeting with an angel holding the Bible as it's written, word for word, and he said, I brought this, y'all know me, you know my life, you know who I am, this is the word of God, I got it in secret from this angel y'all will never meet, just trust me. I'm not sure, you guys, I'm just being honest, I'm not sure I'd be in with that. I think my skeptical mind would just shut down. No, I, just one guy, and that's the life he's living. I don't know. And the Bible's different from that. And you could say the same thing about just about every other major holy book that the world's ever known. Like the Book of Mormon, for example, is another example of the same kind of thing. One guy, right? So the Book of Mormon, purportedly written uh, on gold plates by Native Americans in a language called Reformed Egyptian, which no one knew about it's never been in a language, but it was then, and the Native Americans got to Egypt and got back somehow. We're not sure about that, but don't worry about it. The Native Americans wrote it down on these gold plates, buried the word of God in the ground outside of Rochester, New York, as one does, right? That's what happened. So, and then, and then a treasure hunter by trade finds the gold plates in the ground and takes them and meets with an angel, and the angel uh, tells him what they say, and, and he translates them from... A reformed Egyptian into English. And when 
People asked him, how did he know what Reformed Egyptian was? This language no one's ever heard of. He said, well, the angel Moroni, this is the angel's name, gave me some special glasses and these magical glasses let me understand Reformed Egyptian. And they were like, where are the glasses? And he was like, I don't know. And they were like, where are the plates? And he was like, Moroni told me I can't tell you where the plates are. Like, listen, if a guy like that comes back with a story like that, even if he's holding the content of the Bible, I'm out. Because I've been jaded, I've been hurt by guys with a similar track record and with similar stories, too fanciful to believe, right? And I know the writers of the Bible are not always very good guys. I know it's easy for a cynic to come back at me and say, well, let's talk, Eric, about Moses who murdered a guy and left the scene. Let's talk about Moses who himself got a secret revelation from God on a mountaintop. Does that sound familiar, Eric? Okay. Let's talk, Eric, about David. David, not the greatest guy. Read about Bathsheba and her husband. What happened to them? Not the greatest guy, David. And yet he wrote part of the Bible. What about Ezekiel? Clearly insane. Cooking with poop. Yeah, Ezekiel. A little crazy. A little off. Granted. But none of those guys wrote the Bible. The whole thing. None of them even wrote half of it. None of them wrote a third of it or a quarter of it. They are three witnesses among 40 who are attesting to the same event, to the same story of God's redeeming love for creation. Listen, it's not a, it's not a perfect system, I suppose. I mean, it still has some flaws. 40 different points of view can make the Bible very confusing to read and understand. That's why it feels like you're switching around. Because you are. There's 40 different points of view here. When you know that, and you know what you're looking at, 66, 40, 1,500, 3, and 3, then you start to see just how unique and special the Bible really is. And that was the beginning, I think, the beginning of my turnaround. Whenever I came back around, and finally, after my season of deep doubt, I came back around and decided to give the Bible an honest look. I found three things to be true about the Bible. I found that the Bible was describing the world exactly the way that it is. Secondly, I found that the Bible was describing people exactly the way that we are. And thirdly, I found that the Bible was um, describing a central figure, a lead character in the story it's telling, a character called God who is equally committed to two ideas, justice and love. And these ideas appear to be inherently in conflict with one another, all right? And every good story needs tension. I'll circle back there in just a minute. The first part was um, that the Bible describes the world exactly the way that it is. Um, the, the, the first thing the Bible says about the world is that it's inherently good. And in my season of doubt, I believed that, even though I didn't even know what good meant. Like, how can you even have a concept like good or perfect without some ideal or objective God in the mix, right? So this, this ob objectivity of the Bible describes the world as very good. And I believe that even though it's broken and so much is wrong with it, everything's gone to heck sometimes, but the Bible is good in essence. And I think most of us believe Genesis 131, the Bible is very good, but it's very good, but it's also very broken, and even atheists and agnostics acknowledge this. If you have ever thought to yourself, 
Things just are not the way it should be. That's not the way it should be. This is not the way the world should work. This is not the way a government should work. That's not the way a person should be. Every time you use the word should, you acknowledge that the world is broken and not the way it should be or the way it was created to be. The way that Paul described this is in Romans chapter 8. I used to find passages like this offensive until I grew up and realized that he's only describing reality. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He wants to remake us. He wants to restore us in the image in which we were created, our very good image. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Um, that's Romans 8:20. So the world is very good, but very broken, um, created so beautiful. And we see the beauty, but we also see where things are not the way they should be. Now, the same principle applies to the second thing I learned about the Bible is that the Bible describes people exactly as we are. First thing the Bible says about people is that we're made in the image of God. And I always believed this, that people are basically good. People are intrinsically good and intrinsically worthy. We've talked about this in our series. And the Bible speaks to this, but then the Bible also speaks to our brokenness. I'm going to read a passage to you that used to be one of my favorite passages when I was an atheist. I would quote this passage to other atheists and Christians who were on the brink to try to get them to come over to my side because I thought this was so offensive and I just thought this was the Bible at its worst, right? And I'm going to tell you why in a second. I'll read it to you first. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18, uh, really through 30, but I, I picked and chose some verses here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. This is Paul saying people are wicked who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, Strife, deceit, and malice. Who are these people, you guys? They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue in those things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Y'all, when I was 20... And I hadn't really stepped foot outside of Red Lake, Texas. I used to think to myself, that's not the people that I know. That's not me. Right? For 20 years I lived in East Texas and I don't remember coming across people that were that bad. But then I moved out of Texas and I found them. And uh, um, so, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, uh, kind of. But what happened was, what happened was I grew up. And the longer that you live and the more you watch the news and the more you get your heart broken and the more you realize your own depravity, the more you realize that Paul isn't describing some monsters somewhere else. He's not just describing people who've done the worst things. He's describing all of us because all of us, including me, we're all capable of some really heinous things under the right circumstances, under the right kind of pressures. All of us are capable of doing some awful things and thinking some awful thoughts. And so he's describing all of us. He's not being just gloom and doom, hellfire and brimstone. He's being honest. 
And so the Bible honestly describes the state that we are in. And I was willfully in denial of that state when I walked away, but my eyes were open wide um, when I came back. The Bible isn't just being harsh when it comes to people being sinners. The longer you live, the more you realize how sinful people are, especially outside of Texas. Third, all right, so third. It's not true at all. There's a lot of gossips in Texas. Um, So third, uh, the third thing I realized is that you have this God in the Bible who is the main character. You're not and I'm not. People are not the main characters in the Bible. God is the main character. Other people come and go. And this God is equally committed throughout the Bible to love and justice, which is just words until you start thinking about it. And you realize the more you think about it, that those things are competing interests. So in the Old Testament, it says that God loves righteousness and justice. And then it also says the earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. So <clears throat> the conflict here is that if the world is broken and if people are sinful, things are not the way they ought to be, then there must be justice. And you know that that's true. Because if anyone's ever wronged you, you know they owed you something, damages. Justice must be done. And until the punishment fits their crime, justice has not been done. We all come hardwired for that kind of justice. And whenever there's something in the news that we know about that someone's done, especially like a leader or a priest or somebody like that that's done something, until there's real justice, something doesn't sit right in our hearts because we know justice must be done. Maybe because we're made in the image of the God who loves justice. But the problem here is that it seems to me you can have justice or you can have love, but if the world and people are as lost as we think, you can't have both. Because if the punishment must fit the crime, then that's not going to feel like love. And real justice, some of you are in the legal profession. I had a, a Harris County prosecutor in my last service, and I kept looking at her in the service like, she knows justice can be swift and harsh and cold. It's not always about love. Sometimes it's just about justice, the price being paid for the wrong that's been done. You can have a God who believes in justice, or you can have a God who is all about love. And if a God is all about love, then even when we're lost, even when we're broken, there must be forgiveness, mercy, unconditional affection, right? So love doesn't always bring justice. Justice doesn't always feel like love. So how can this tension be resolved? Two-thirds of the Bible is about that. The first two-thirds of the Bible is all about how this tension can be resolved. People keep doing stupid things, and God keeps being about justice and love, and the people are like, is he going to punish us or is he going to love us? What's the, what's the answer going to be? And this tension is not resolved in a courtroom. It's not resolved on a battlefield. It's resolved on the muddy floor of a Bethlehem stall where a young woman gives voice to an earth in pain as she cries out in labor. And when her baby comes, she wraps him in swaddling cloths and she lies him in a manger and she can't take her eyes off of him because she knows that this baby of hers is the answer to every question that scripture ever asks. Is God going to bring justice 
Is God going to let the punishment fit the crimes that have been committed? Yes. And Jesus, Mary's baby, is going to bear it for us. Is God going to forgive us and love us unconditionally? Is God always going to be there for us? Yes. And Mary's baby is going to prove it to us. Two-thirds of the Bible called for a Messiah, predicted a Messiah that would come. And some of these predictions just seemed contradictory. Even the same prophet, Isaiah, said two things about the Messiah to come. He said the Messiah is going to be a king who brings justice. And then a few chapters later, he said the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant who bears the brunt of the justice that's been exacted. How can one Messiah fulfill both of these identities? Mary's baby. The king who comes to bring justice and to be the suffering servant who bears the burden of the sentence that's been handed down. He is one in the same. He is the answer to all of our questions. And the New Testament says that Jesus shows that God's every answer in him is yes. Now listen, I know you've had your heart broken by stories that were too good to be true. And I know you've put your trust before in people. Maybe someone in my position right now. And you got your heart broken. I know there's a thousand reasons right now that you would have to walk away and to let your heart grow harder and to continue just to live your life for yourself mostly, just being a nice person. I know. But I'm telling you that Mary's baby came and bore the conviction and the punishment we deserved for one purpose, and it's not to make you feel bad, and it's not to make you religious, and it's not to get your money from you, and it's not to make you ashamed. It's to have a relationship with you. That's the point of the whole thing. All 66 books are building up to that, that the God who made you wants to know you and talk to you and hear from you and love you and forgive you. He wants you to know him and to grow more deeply in love with him every day. He wants you to explore the vast riches of his word. Y'all, I've been studying it for years, and every day it amazes me. It never gets old. It never runs out. It's a beautiful thing. And listen, there's no better time than Christmas to remember that Mary's baby really was born 2,000 Christmases ago. He really walked this earth for 30 years. He really died on a Roman cross for your sins and mine. And he really rose from his tomb so that you will rise too. And if you've been running from him or you've just been religious and just kind of coasting, listen, let today be different. Let this Christmas be different.